I'm Daniel Hartz, and this is the Sustainability Champions Podcast. My guest today is Indranil Ghosh, author of the recently published book, Powering Prosperity, A Citizen's Guide to Shaping the 21st Century, and the founder and CEO of Tiger Hill Capital in London, where they specialize in investments in environmental and social impact companies. Thank you so much for joining me, Indranil. Great to be with you, Daniel. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. And today, I'd really like to discuss these two things, which is, first of all, your book, Powering Prosperity, and why we're experiencing a unique opportunity right now to launch humankind on a positive trajectory, which sounds very optimistic. I absolutely love that. And I also want to really hear about Tiger Hill Capital's projects and, and how you're promoting sustainability with both of these things. So with, with the book, um, you mentioned that we're experiencing a unique opportunity right now. Um, and I suppose that also ties in with these crazy COVID times. We're in a unique opportunity to launch humankind on a positive trajectory. So what does that actually mean? Daniel, it's uh, interesting that we start there because when I was thinking about what to put in the book and designing the concept of it, I had been thinking a lot about crises and revolutions. And what often happens is there's a bifurcation. You know, either um, humanity or country heads off in a very positive direction um, or um, a very negative direction. And so examples of positive ones would be, for example, um, the American independence uh, or the American Civil War. Uh, you could say the Second World War led to you know, the formation of global institutions that um, have provided us a, a level of security for you know, almost 70 years. But there have, of course, been other revolutions which have uh, gone the other way, like the rise of communism in, in Russia, for example. Now, as I thought about you know, revolutions and, and crises, what's interesting is that humanity, or at least a part of humanity, is brought to the brink. And usually they, they are protesting against the violation of one of three freedoms. Either it's the basic human rights have in some way been suppressed, or there's discrimination of one segment of society's human rights over another. Uh, the second is uh, political participation, where not every citizen or not every group of citizens in a country have the equal ability to participate in the political process. And thirdly, socioeconomic mobility. So regardless of where you start off in life in the, in the socioeconomic ladder, if you don't have roughly equal opportunity to go up or down as anyone else, then that can also lead to resentment and eventually a backlash. Now, what I had been noticing um, for the last 10 years in particular is that there was a, a there seemed to be a crescendo of protest and disaffection in the system that we had, that in different countries, in different corners of the world, protests were mounting. And it was usually because of a feeling that one or more of these three freedoms had been violated to unbearable point. And, you know, you could include in that uh, the environmental and climate change issues, which, um, you know, are part of this as well. And, you know, without some sort of a system change, I felt as though, you know, we would be at a loss as, as humanity. Now, progress had been somewhat slow and incremental and frustrating, um, I would say, over the last 10 years. Yes, we had the Paris Climate Accords, but then the U.S. broke out of it. Mm -hmm. 
you know, that we seem to be stuttering forward and then stuttering back in different parts of the world with, you know, various political and economic crises. But I think what's interesting now, uh, having gone through the, uh, in, the, in the throes of this COVID crisis, is we are in a crisis which is so acute and so deep and probably on the magnitude of the, of the, the, the Great Depression, if not worse that we will have loss of life, we will have um, these severe economic hardships. We're in the backdrop of, again, environmental crisis, and it's only a matter of time before that begins to you know, get much worse if we don't take action. And there's great inequality all around the world. Now, the point about a crisis is that it's, it's, it's a terrible thing to waste, as, as Churchill said. And what happens in a crisis is there's an opportunity to reset these, you know, systemic problems because public, um, you know, uh, opinion just won't allow the status quo to continue. And also because of the constraints on the system, because we, we have to work remotely, we can't trade freely, we can't move freely, there's almost by necessity the need to innovate and try new things. And as in previous crises, when new things are allowed to flourish, new ways of doing things, better ways of doing things, you get much faster progress, and hopefully you correct the systemic problems you know, much more rapidly. So you know, even though I wrote the book before COVID-19 struck, I felt as though there was a need for you know, this type of a almost revolutionary um, change in the system. And I hope that we now we have the means, uh, rather the opportunity, we take the opportunity to, to make some of those changes happen. Yeah, it's interesting that, um, like you said, you wrote the book before COVID times, and yet now we find ourselves in an even deeper or bigger crisis. So um, to a certain degree, your, your book is even more relevant than it was when you originally wrote it and published it a couple months before or when you finished writing a couple months before coronavirus became a huge global pandemic. Yes, I believe so. And in fact, I think what's happened is that many of the changes that would otherwise uh, have occurred more incrementally and over the course of the decade uh, have, are likely to accelerate to happen in, in the space of you know, a few years. But I think you know, that is uh, hopefully a, a positive outcome uh, from this. In, in the book, I, I talked about um, three key principles that mm -hmm. you know we should think about following in order to make a positive change come out of um, the global transition or what has now become a crisis. And one idea was inclusive governance. The second was investing with purpose, and the third was empowering local communities. And I think these three principles, as you said, are even more required now than um, before COVID. Now, let me just go through them very briefly. So inclusive governance is the idea that these three freedoms that I mentioned, uh, civil rights, socioeconomic mobility, and political participation, are offered to all segments of society uh, equally, and they have equal access to those three freedoms. Now, that type of equal access is given by having strong, inclusive institutions, right? So part of this process of changing the system is going to be to improve our institutions to make them more inclusive. And what do I mean by institutions? They can be anything from our antitrust laws, which you know should allow uh, or shouldn't allow individual companies to become too large and too profitable, too monopolistic, which I arguably is happening in parts of the tech sector. 
but actually it's happened across all sectors where companies, the, the larger companies are taking a much larger share of the profits than ever before in the past, uh, in recent times anyway. And so that obviously creates um, concentration of wealth and ultimately that translates into power. And that power, you know, how much it can be exerted depends on political institutions. So, for example, you know, countries where um, there aren't strong campaign finance laws or gerrymandering laws aren't, you know, um, as, as well uh, protected. Um, there are opportunities for those with large amounts of funds to begin to do elections through the amount of wealth that they have and therefore curb political participation being equally uh, distributed to the population. And if you go through and think about all of the different types of institutions we have in society, even, even things like corporate governance, if corporate governance is enacted purely for the benefit of the shareholder, which has been the norm for the last 30 or 40 years since Milton Friedman you know, made that a tenet of free market, then of course there will be, that will be at the, at the detriment of other stakeholders of the corporation like labor and the community and so on. So you know, a stakeholder approach to corporate governance where there's greater concern taken about all stakeholders' benefit is another institutional characteristic that needs to be thought about. And there are many that I talk about in the book that you can systematically go through and improve so that it levels the playing field for everyone. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you do that, you don't get incidences like the, the vicious cycle of deprivation of black Americans in the U.S. that has, you know, unfortunately resulted in the George, George Floyd incident and the, the protests that have um, you know, propagated throughout the world from that because it's really a reflection of failure of institutions to be inclusive to an important segment or any segment of the population. So I think in inclusive governance is at the base of everything. But then I think there are some other principles we need to put into effect, which is the second one is investing with purpose. And what I mean by that is making sure that precious capital flows to companies and projects that can have both a financial impact, but also provide societal benefits. The classic double bottom line uh, thinking or ESG thinking. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, I think right now, first, a lot of capital just doesn't flow with that kind of intention behind it at all, whether it's public money or private money. And secondly, ESG investing, because of the way it's structured right now, is largely ineffective because there aren't clear standards for measuring and reporting the, the outcomes that companies are achieving on an ESG basis. So it's become a bit of a case of garbage in, garbage out. Hmm. You know, you don't have good transparency because there are no standards of reporting into what companies are actually doing and how much impact they are actually having. So there's no basis to allocate capital to the, the good ESG companies versus the poor ESG companies. So, you know, only a proportion of that capital which has an ESG intent actually makes it to having the impact it wants, right? So we really need to reform, again, institutions and, and regulations and frameworks that allow this type of well-intended capital to, to have its desired outcome. And the third thing is empowering local communities, because I think there has, again, been a skew towards where assets and resources have gone in the last 30 or 40 years. A lot of it has ended up in, in cities that have, you know, 
knowledge-based economies and has, because of that concentration of an urbanization, uh, as well as other effects like um, globalization, have um, deindustrialized and left certain communities behind. And again, a certain amount of investment in those communities, as well as those communities taking the initiative to, to, to rebuild and attract businesses that can revitalize um, their localities it is a really another very important part of, of the puzzle. Yeah, it's interesting. The As you're describing this, it makes me think of, of a pyramid, basically, where inclusive governance, as you said, is kind of the first and foremost, and that's the basis, essentially, to, to level the playing field, as you said, to make sure that uh, anyone who wants to participate and who wants to be able to uh, get involved has the opportunity, um, because once you have that, then that next tier, the second tier of the pyramid is then investing with purpose, which is then anyone can participate and actually uh, get funding in order to create an idea and, and build a, build an idea. And as part of that investment, then you're able to empower local communities and not just focus on the, the massive corporations. I think that that pyramid, I can see now how they how they really build one on top of another. You nailed it. That's exactly right, Daniel. And, and that's kind of the, the, the flow of the book as well. Yeah, that's really cool. So what is the what would you say is the main message of the book? Because a, a lot of this, at least, um, you know, talking about it kind of on big, you know, briefly describing each one of these imperatives, as you as you call them, it's it's obviously quite broad. So from the point of view of the main message, and one thing I love about the book is um, you call it a citizen's guide to shaping the 21st century, which makes it sound like I'm a citizen. I, I can do something. Um, so what would you say is, um, is the main message as far as these three imperatives and, and how those tie into the three freedoms you mentioned earlier? Uh, I, the book is absolutely about that. It's hopefully to get people to realize how much influence they have and to start exercising that. Because one of the ideas I talk about in the book is that every individual, whoever they are, mm. has many different roles in society. And whereas you might think that one role gives you uh, not much power, there's probably some other role you have which has a disproportionate amount of power relative to what you think. Um, so, you know, for example, you, you know, may have a, a job, you may, may be in a, an executive role that may give you some important uh, influence in a company and what it does and how it treats its workers, um, how it treats uh, the environment. You may be on a school board as well, which gives you the power and influence to affect the lives of the next generation, how they're educated, how they become, they can become productive citizens who have an inclusive and sustainability mindset and who are taught in a way in which they can practically you know, engage in, in society and not necessarily be taught in sort of 19th century theoretical methods, but something that's much more participative and, you know, drives critical thinking and where the curriculum actually engages students in solving real-world problems from an early age. Of course, many people are also parents. So um, even though you may not have influence over an educational institution, you have an intimate influence over the next generation, uh, which is your offspring, and, and have to have that ability to mold uh, the future of, of one or two citizens is a, in a, an immense responsibility. But then, of course, you have a lot of power in terms of the way you spend your, your own money, what you buy. So uh, out of the 80 
uh, trillion dollars of global GDP, 50 trillion is spending, consumer spending. So it's 50 trillion dollars collectively of consumer spending power that you can either you know, spend on products coming from irresponsible corporations or more responsible and ethical corporations through your investing, whether it's a large pot of money or a small pot of money. You have the right to, to vote on which companies make it and don't make it through your investments, which hopefully there will be more opportunities for you to, to guide you on what are more ESG and impact-oriented companies in the future than we have today. And of course, there's your, your political vote which hopefully you, you live in a country where there's more proportional representation um, rather than some of the first-past-the-post systems we have, which really mean that minority of voters get to really determine local and um, national elections. But you do have the opportunity to, to make sensible choices about political candidates who are aligned with the kind of agenda that I'm talking about, which will lead to a more positive outcome than some of the more populist leaders uh, that we have actually elected uh, of late. Yeah, I don't need to name any any uh, specific ones. I think we all know who you're referring to. And I think um, you're, you're absolutely right with the... Um, with the power of the individual, uh, the more I'm speaking to people in the field of sustainability, and um, especially when you start thinking about supply and demand, you really realize that basically demand is, or rather supply, is what a lot of people ask for. And a lot of people are, that it's a group made up of individuals. So each and every single person actually does really matter in that. And the other point which you mentioned is is how networked we are, how 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 much we influence one another as well, whether you know very directly as a teacher or a parent, as you mentioned, or even as friends or peers or colleagues. Um, oftentimes, one person can make a really big difference just by making some different choices, and then they influence other people as well. And so, you know, doing something small like bringing a a reusable bag to the grocery store, it may not seem like a really big action. Uh, what you could actually be doing is sending the message to other people at the store that they should be doing the same. Yeah. You, you don't see that. And it doesn't mean it's not happening just because you don't see that. Um, it, it's, it's, it's very powerful. Yes. I think this sort of networked effect that we can have to influence other people's behavior and mindset is actually the most important transmission mechanism. Institutions hold things together and hold things in place. But, you know, there's also the cultural element that you're infusing your children, you know, young, impressionable minds at schools and universities, you know, companies uh, and how they behave through your various points of influence um, is really very critical. And I've, I've, I've read this uh, work by... Um, Erica Chenoweth at Harvard. Um, she's a political scientist and actually blew my mind because she made the observation that, you know, what dictators are really terrified of is small groups of influencers who then somehow have a viral effect and uh, influence an, an entire population to rise up against them. And what she found was that when she analyzed previous, you know, uprisings and revolutions, but it only took about three, three and a half percent of a population to want to drive um, a revolutionary change and to keep persisting at it for about three years 
for for there to be actually not just a revolution but a successful revolution and to overthrow a ruler and put in place uh, at least an incrementally better one. Now, you know, from a dictator standpoint, they want to suppress that in whatever way they can, which is why they have strong military, propaganda, these days digital repression. But if you think about it from the change agent's perspective, your point about how important the network and the signaling effect is of individual behavior. If we can just, you know, get three and a half percent of the population to believe that a revolutionary change is necessary, it's likely to happen. If you can persuade three and a half people around you out of every hundred people that you know, that you should be, um, use, you know, not getting a new plastic shopping bag every time you go to Tesco's, then plastic shopping bags will probably be eliminated fairly soon. Absolutely. And um, yeah, I mean, like you said, three and a half percent is not very much. Going to Tiger Hill Capital, you, you mentioned a, a couple times the words, um, uh, or the letters rather, ESG. Um, and that, that mm-hmm. is an important component. And uh, there's a lot of, I'm aware that there are a number of companies and, and uh, funds that practice ESG investing. Um, so what exactly is ESG and, and why is it important? Well, let's just park the term ESG for a second and talk about sustainable investing. I think a lot of people want to invest their money so that they achieve strong environmental, social, and governance impact or outcomes. So they want results, which are things like diversity and inclusion in the workforce, equal pay for equal work, good benefits for workers, and protections um, when they may be out of work or you know, otherwise un- unable to work. They want lower carbon footprint. They want less pollution. They want stronger corporate governance of companies to, to prevent malpractices. So they want these results in addition to financial returns. But in order to select the right companies to invest in, they would need a lot of information about that company's ESG uh, outcomes. The problem is that we don't have a system yet that's sophisticated enough and standardized enough to provide information on how much impact companies are having on a predefined set of metrics. That is a big gap that the industry is trying to correct. So the next best thing that we can have are metrics of so-called ES&G that is a bit more of a checkbox process where a company says, yes, we have a, a diversity and inclusion policy or we're producing X number of tons of carbon dioxide per year. And based on these very imperfect indicators, which are only indicators of whether they're actually going to have impact or not, investors can make decisions on what companies they invest in based on ESG scoring, right? Now, as you can see, this is, all, this is a very imperfect system and mostly applied to listed companies, which is, again, why I mentioned the garbage in, garbage out. A lot of the time, that capital is not necessarily going to the kind of company you intended it to go to because the measuring and reporting system is so flawed. But I think there is uh, hope at the end of the, 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 the tunnel in that there are a lot of efforts underway to correct that. And I think the investor sentiment, particularly in the, in the light of this COVID crisis and all the social challenges they're facing, is really going to be insisting on an improvement there. Mm. But what we do at Tiger Hill Capital is really focus on 
growth stage private investments, so helping individuals or family offices and other investors to put their money in growth stage companies in a private equity or venture style uh, to support the growth of companies that we're very confident because of the very nature of their business model will have a strong social, environmental and governance impact. Got it. And what are some of those, what are some of the projects that you're, you're working with or working on rather? Well, currently, you know, we're very excited by some of the um, environment, positive environmentally impactful companies that we have, you know, in our pipeline. So we're working particular with one vertical farming um, company called Empire State Greenhouses based in mm-hmm. upstate New York, which is very exciting because this is a 400,000 square foot vertically stacked uh, indoor greenhouse that's going wow. to be built you know, out in the, the countryside in upstate New York. Now, the benefit of, of, of such an operation is that you, you get leafy greens, uh, certain fruits and vegetables and spices grown around the year, around the clock in very controlled um, environment, which is controlled for temperature, humidity and lighting. So that basically the plants are growing at optimal conditions 24-7, 365. So you get much higher yield per square foot of space. There's very little water loss because the whole facility is going to be powered by solar and manure digested um, biogas. You know, the, the energy, which is about 38% of the, the value of the produced food, the, the running cost of that energy is, is almost zero. Mm. Um, and also because you, you cut down the transportation from, you know, where the produce is currently made, which is California and, um, and you know, the southern parts of the U.S. and Florida, cut down the thousands of miles of transportation cost to a couple of hundred miles. There's obviously a, a huge saving in transportation cost and carbon footprint. So the economics of this type of operation are astronomically good, and the environmental impact is tremendous. And going back to community building, you know, this facility will bring a hundred college-level, well-paid jobs to a rural part of upstate New York, which will then have a multiplier effect on how the rest of that community benefits from from that new influx of uh, of talent. Yeah, it's a really good point, and that's uh, it's a very cool project. the The other point that um, uh, I think is worth mentioning with something like that is that um, you know, if restaurants in New York City, for instance, want some of that fresh produce, it can probably be picked that morning uh, and driven into the city. So you don't need to pick, you know, any of these uh, leafy greens, for instance, you know, like two weeks ahead of time so that they can make it through those thousands of miles of journey. So not only is it, are there all these environmental and uh, financial benefits, there's also just the flavor. It's probably going to taste a lot better because you said it's also growing in ideal conditions. So it's like this quadruple win situation. Yes, we're kind of running out of bottom lines to <laughs> second or third or fourth. There's a lot of bottom lines to this yeah. project, which is why I really love it. And there are others like that in, in different sectors that we're working on, um, whether it's... Um, you know, making better use of real estate or recycling rubber, low-loss transmission lines because the transmission lines are being made out of a material that you know radically reduces the amount of power loss. And these are all you know projects that could have tremendous environmental or, or and or social impact um, and local community impact, which is why you know we love them and and we support them. 
Yeah, absolutely. And what, what would you say, kind of broadly speaking, um, off the back of this, what, what is the role that investing has for us as, you know, as, as people around the world to actually meet our global sustainability goals? Well, I think it has an extremely fundamental role to play. So I'll explain it in a couple of different ways. So if you just look at the overall numbers, right? So in the book, I do a little bit of math, not much. <laughs> but I looked at the question of how much is it going to cost to achieve these 17 UN Sustainable Development Goals? Mm -hmm. And by the UN's own calculations, um, it's somewhere in the order of $2.5 trillion dollars of of money which is not factored in into the budgets of governments so some of the un some of the capital requirements are factored into what governments have already um committed to 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 address these types of issues around sustainability and environment and and uh, beating poverty and so on but there's a gap of two and a half trillion per year and they say until at least 2030. It's probably well beyond that, which is the funding gap. Now, when I actually analyzed the numbers, I thought there were some things missing because we don't really talk about, or they don't really talk about uh, things like the amount of social housing and real estate that will need to be built for the you know, additional population growth, many of whom will come in lower income countries. I don't think they fully account for that. Hmm. They don't account for the fact that if you want more people to participate in the workforce and you still want you know, a decent fertility rate so population doesn't plunge to zero and leave us with you know, a population and a fiscal crisis, then parents have to be able to work because they have to have children to stop the aging problem, but they also need to be able to work to power the economy and pay taxes. Well, that means a massive investment in childcare, hmm. um, not to mention the investments that we need in healthcare and education, which are largely factored in, but childcare isn't. Now, countries that do it well, like France, spend a percent or a half, one and a half percent of GDP on childcare, whereas most countries spend almost nothing from a public spending standpoint, which is why here in the UK, for example, you know, childcare costs, whether it's nannies or uh, whatever kind of support it is, is so expensive and it can take up to about 30% of disposable income. Wow. Right? That shows you the barrier to working and also the barrier to having children. Right? So you're doubly hit by not accounting for the, the adequate expenses in childcare. So there's a massive gap, which I think is actually more like $5 trillion per year. Now, if $5 trillion per year if you compare that against the global tax base, which is about 25 trillion, that means that to, to, to fill this gap, you'd have to increase taxes across the board in every country by 20%. You think about the battles that we have to increase taxes by 1%, clearly that's never gonna happen, right? Which means that you are left with not the annual tax collection process, but the wealth that people already have as a way to invest in to, to fill this funding gap. And when you look at public and private wealth, public wealth is actually in the form of sovereign wealth funds and other reserves that you know, nations have isn't very much. It's a few tens of trillions of dollars. But global private wealth is $200 trillion. And that's invested in largely in assets that have no societal or environmental benefits as an intent, right? So this is why Sustainable investing is so critical that private capital being steered into 
with purpose and intention into sustainable companies and projects is the way to address the UN Sustainable Development Goals and all the challenges that we currently face. That's why it's so important. And, you know, the other reason why it's so important is investing or the allocation of money is really driven by better information. And so the reason why investing is very important and our entire profession and discipline is so important is it empowers or it creates the need to provide more transparency and information on what is happening in the world and how different commercial ventures can affect that in a positive or negative way, which is why the investing profession needs to become more than just a financial profession, but also a socioeconomic information generating profession to explain to people why certain companies, certain projects are going to have a much bigger impact than just a financial return and help drive capital, this precious 200 trillion in private wealth to the right places. Yeah, well, that's... um that makes a lot of sense. You're basically, it's investing is almost like the fuel for how we, how we get to, to our sustainability goals based on that. $200 trillion of private wealth is insane. That's, um, that's a lot. And if you're saying 5 trillion, I mean, that's uh, a relatively small percentage of 200. Yeah. It's 5 trillion a year and total is 200 trillion. So you'd have to be investing 5 trillion from that 12, 200 trillion every year for some time to get the kind of effect that you need. But yes, it just shows the the relative magnitude of what resources we actually have and how much is required to solve the problem. So we shouldn't feel powerless. We shouldn't feel powerless and point of the book. We shouldn't feel powerless and um, frustrated. We've got to use the, the resources and the influence that we have and just channel it in the right directions. Get that three and a half percent of the population behind us and change will happen. Yeah, well, I think that's a really great, really great message. And I, I firmly agree with you that the individual is a lot more powerful than I think many individuals give, give themselves credit. We, we certainly can make a huge change on our own, um, obviously with the help of others. I just think it, like you're saying, it starts with, with you, uh, you, the person who's listening to this. Uh, and that's, that's a really optimistic and, and exciting thing. I think personally, it makes me really motivated and wants me, I want to go out and do something even, even if it's small, because ultimately little things add up and they do make a big difference. It all counts. Exactly. It all counts, Daniel. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for your time. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, I'm pleased to hear that you're a firm believer in in the power of the individual and that you're working on hopefully shifting uh, a big portion of that 200 trillion to uh <laughs> to some great in, uh, investments and companies uh, around the world. Yes, well, we're, we're trying to do our we're trying to do our little bit. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure you're doing a um, a fantastic job with it. So, um anyone who who's interested in learning about Tiger Hill Capital or uh, purchasing purchasing your book called Powering Prosperity: Citizen's Guide to Shaping the 21st Century. Uh, where can they Where can they learn more about Tiger Hill Capital and ultimately purchase the book? Well, you can find out about Tiger Hill Capital at our website, tigerhillcapital.com. Um, you can also reach out to me personally. Uh, my email address is indranil.gosh, G-H-O-S-H at tigerhillcapital.com. And the book is available on Amazon uh, in most parts of the world. Just look it up uh, as Powering Prosperity. 
And you know, it's available in hardcover and Kindle, as you prefer. Probably Kindle's a little bit faster these days yeah. <laughs> where the supply chains were the way they are. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, there, there there's, should be a way to get your hands on, on, on the book. Indranel, thank you again for your time. And uh, it was really great to talk to you and, and learn about all the work that you're doing. Thank you. Daniel, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, give us a five-star rating. And also, please subscribe, whether on your podcast app or on YouTube. And that way you can be the first to know about new episodes. Thank you very much and talk to you soon.